Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the All Saints podcast. I'm delighted today to have a very special guest with us. Some of you will have come across him in his various other outlets and uh, activities. I'm with David Barnson, who is the founder, managing partner, and chief investment officer of the Barnson Group, a national private wealth management firm managing over $4 billion of client assets. He's consistently named as one of America's top financial advisors by Barron's Forms and the Financial Times. He's a frequent guest on numerous TV networks. He's an author of several books, including No Free Lunch, Crisis of Responsibility, and The Case for Dividend Growth. He's a husband, father of three children. He's a regular contributor to National Review and World Magazines, founding trustee of the Pacifica Christian High School in Orange County, California, the senior fellow of economics at the Center for Cultural Leadership, longtime faculty member for the Acton Institute and the Blackstone Fellowship of the Alliance Defending Freedom. But today, David Barnson hits the big time as he lands on the All Saints <laughs> podcast. David, we are very grateful to you for giving us a bit of your time uh, to talk with you about some of these issues related to work and finance and Christian theology. Well, it's my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all the very kind words. Well, it's, honestly, it's, it's great to have you with us. Um, and seriously, um, we want to just jump straight in because um, you're busy and the people who are listening to this will be busy too. And what I'd really like to do and what I've really valued your work for, if I can just sketch it and then we can jump straight in. The folks listening to this podcast uh, are mostly, if not all, uh, enthusiastically committed to the application of scripture to every area of their lives. They want to think through how the Bible applies to everything. We've had a lot of conversations here in the last few months at All Saints about work. Uh, we've not talked so much about investments in part because I'm not really the man to talk to about that, but you are. And uh, you're both a Christian and a th theologically minded Christian at that. And also with considerable experience thinking through the issues of investment management and uh, the workplace. So I'd, I'd just love to make some kind of connections and see Okay, how do you get from cultural mandate, uh, the sovereignty of God over all things, the lordship of Christ over all things, the sufficiency of the scriptures for all things? How do you get from that to your convictions about, well, let's start with work. How, what, what would you take to be the major biblical principles that should inform our understanding of the workplace? Well, I think that... Um... All of the, if you go back to enough, you know, foundational principles here, my answer would be pretty similar if we were talking about investment management first principles, if we were talking about work and vocational principles, which is more what your question's about, yeah. um, and a whole lot of other areas of application in Christian thought and life mm -hmm. is that I want to go back to creation. And I think that an uh, understanding of what the Christian life ought to look like and the way we think about that life, this term that we call a worldview, mm -hmm. I don't know how else to start it, but from creation. And so there is a, a particular um, philosophy uh, there, and to be more specific, there is a theory of knowledge, uh, an epistemology, yeah. that I consider distinctly Christian, that is, for me, a sin qua non in how I think about 
uh, matters of application. And the application you've asked me about is vocation. Yeah, yeah. So I have a book coming out in February of 2024. <laughs> and it feels like a long time away because I just got done writing the book. I've been working on it in a lot of ways for over 10 years in my in my heart and my mind and working through the issues. But I've literally been typing and writing and drafting the book for the last six months. It's all done. It's edited. It's at the publisher. But the the title of the book is Full Time right. Work and the Meaning of Life. Huh. And that's how I'll answer your question, is I consider work to be the meaning of life. I consider it to be what God made us for. And there is a certain boldness in that answer. Right. Because many Christians would say, well, don't you believe God made us to be in communion with him? And right. I do. Yeah. And I, and of course, I'm also incredibly fond of probably the greatest answer ever drafted to this question in the catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yet, I don't think what I'm saying is any different than those answers. Right. I think that there are certain, I don't want to call them spiritual platitudes, but there are spiritual principles that people will default to that mm. don't always pack the punch of what that really means in terms of a Christian life. And when right. I go back to Genesis, I see a creator who chose to work for six days and rest on the seventh mm. and chose to make his handiwork of the sixth day that which was very good, that which he made in his image, that which he actually made with a special dignity that was not bestowed upon the animal and plant kingdom. Right. And that is humanity, the human right. person made flesh for the purpose of being image bearers of God, which we understand from the Genesis account to effectively mean co-creators with him. Right, right. That we are to work in the earth for its dominion, its cultivation, its stewardship, and the extraction of its potential. Mm -hmm. So all of these principles that guide my thinking on this subject, my theology, and certainly what I hope will be my life's testimony, right. all of these things have to start at creation. So let me push you a couple of points here then. Um, I, I've heard, and you've probably heard, um, the, the alternative to your subtitle, Work and the Meaning of Life, which goes something like, you know, we're not defined by our work or something yeah. like that. And, and of course, there's a sense in which that's true if you say we're not defined by our salary or we're not defined by what other people think of us in some generic sense. But we, how would you want to respond to somebody who said, yeah, but come on, David, we're not defined by our work, are we? Well, here, here's the, I have two answers to it. And, and first, I'm going to start with an inconvenient caveat that a lot of people won't like. But it's okay. I'm prepared for all of this. Right. Well, I'm going to send any emails I get to you. Okay. So you go right there, ahead. <laughs> uh, I happen to have been very blessed in my career uh, to have achieved a certain degree of material success in the career. It doesn't define me. I, um, I would not feel less about myself if I made less money than I make. But I am in a uh, situation where um, I, I feel very grateful for a certain material prosperity that I've enjoyed through um, wor working very hard over the years. 
the idea of me ever saying I'm defined by my salary has never crossed my mind. Mm-hmm. And I've, I deal with an awful lot of high earners in my life and in career. And I've never heard any of them say that. So who is it that says you're not defined by your salary? It is people that I think often it's not because they're really hard workers that have really found a great niche that have really found a, a real important calling. And sometimes it might be sacrificial and yet just happens to not pay a lot of money. Right, I don't hear right. them say it. Hmm. I think most of the time someone is taking the effort to say you're not defined by your salary, which everybody can agree on. Right. Hard workers, people that work hard with big salaries, people that work hard without big salaries, everyone agrees. So it's not to defend that, oh, yes, you are defined by your salary, because you're not. I just want to point out that the only ones who ever really say it, I think, are generally people that are not condoning a low salary, but are condoning a mediocrity. Right, right, right. Their objective is not really the salary. That's a pretext to a different objective, which is really a low view of performance, of calling, of right. So, so you distinguish to frame that another way. We we might say, of course, we're not defined by our salary, but actually, our work, how we give ourselves to our work and to serving other people, that does define us. Well, and this is that this is kind of the more important part of your question is hmm. um, this this fundamental issue is work our identity. Right. Right. And if what one means by that is the entirety of one's identity, the sort of cosmos of the whole human person is defined Mm -hmm. only in the element of their professional vocation. Again, not only is the answer no, but there is nobody who really believes that. (laughs) Of course. Yet, do we want to say that work is not a part of the identity? Does anyone Mm -hmm. believe that? Right. Like, do we believe that part of who makes Michael Jordan who he is that he was the greatest basketball player ever of the earth? Or do we, in order to spiritualize this conversation, have to pretend that we're stupid? Right. And, right, and, right. And, and, and that's why I'm being purposely sort of crass and even a bit sarcastic here, because everybody knows yes. that part of Michael Jordan's identity is being the greatest basketball player of all time, all this stuff, right? Right, right, right. And, and so I don't believe that it is true in what I think about the theology of the body as embodied mm-hmm. creatures, that we can separate our identity from what we do. Right Now, right. I think that when we talk about our identity being in Christ, I believe in a really important holistic understanding of the human person. Mm. But I'm not a Gnostic who thinks that the human body and physical and material elements are subpar in God's eyes, and that the sort of spiritual and immaterial and ethereal are, are heightened or enlightened. I believe that Christ took on the um, character uh, that God was, that Christ was fully God and fully man. And mm-hmm. in being fully man, th- that includes a physical and a, a spiritual component. Right, and right. to separate, um, there's a sort of fallacy of composition here. No, I do not think that the entirety of me being uh, owning a wealth management firm, that that is the entirety of my identity. 
but nor do I believe my identity can be defined apart from that component. Right, we right. are part, we are what we do. And so I use reductio ad absurdums like Michael Jordan right. and, and sometimes negative ones to make the point. Yeah. Do we believe that you meet someone who does nothing, who lays on the couch all day, who is somewhat irresponsible? Now, maybe it doesn't mean they're not paying bills because maybe they receive a stipend from a trust fund. And, but regardless right. of whether or not they're being degenerates with their financial obligations, their contributions to society are nil. They do nothing versus somebody else who is achieving volunteering in a soup kitchen or the lawyer at the largest law firm on Park Avenue. It's, right. I don't care about the socioeconomic status. Yeah. Someone who is contributing to society and someone is doing nothing. Yeah. Do we believe that they're the same person, that we should think of them the same way? Of right. course right. not. And, and, so why and do the, we pretend? The Christ example is perfect, isn't it? Because what Christ's identity and what Christ did are all bound up with each other. You know, we, 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 our relationship with Christ is established both by who he is and by what he's done. And those two things are intertwined, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So let me, it's, let me, it's such an important point theologically. Let, let, me, let me make a, just push you in one other direction in relation to this before we talk about investment principles particularly. Um, American workplace has undergone some changes in the last few years with uh, COVID and um, working from home and um, the kind of quiet quitting revolution. And that's superimposed on a bunch of longer term uh, economic and social trends. How, how do you see uh, the Christian perspective on work running up against that which is found in the American workplace and and Particularly, are there opportunities for Christians in that kind of context? Well, I certainly think that there ought to be. But like so many other issues, I think we have to candidly self-assess. Is the church a prophetic voice to the culture or is the church an echo of the culture? Right. And if right now there is a general message, you mentioned this sort of hypothetical alternative subtitle, um, that we would, some people would say, you know, w w our lives are being altered negatively by being too focused on work and that we all need to sort of remove from the pressures and anxieties of work. I would ask, is that a message that one hears in sort of secular paperback dog dogma? Um, uh, it's popular on Instagram. It's popular on TikTok. It's popular in, in you know, pop psychology but the church has a different message hmm. or is that the same exact message right, one right. hears both in the world and the church as as far as it pertains to most evangelical uh american churches i think the um rule is an anti-work message and the exception is one that is more in line with what i'm proposing and so in this COVID moment you refer to, which really predates COVID, mm. the labor participation force started dropping a great deal after the financial crisis. COVID heightened or, or gave cover to a lot of other bad habits and bad trends. But do I think that right now there is an opportunity for bold Christians to be contrarian and countercultural with a message of a high degree of work in a time where there's high quit rates, where the, this work from home dynamic, where uh, even in, in certain parts of the West, 
people are wanting three and four day work weeks. Do I think there is a great opportunity to be countercultural? I most certainly do. Right, right, right. Because we can just go back to the basics and the foundations and and work hard and stand against the culture. I, I want to switch um, switch gears and talk about um, the investment uh, world, which is one about which you know a great deal and I know next to nothing. And um, uh, you want to make some comments about the connection of scriptural and theological principles with this, but take us back half a step first. Um, most, if not almost all the people who listen to this are investors at some level. People that own stocks, they have a pension fund, they have something, right? At the most basic level, what, what are you doing if you go and buy shares in a company on this, or you buy an index fund or something like that? What are you, what does it, how would you parse that theologically or biblically to describe what's going on? Well, you did, there are two different things because you had mentioned if you buy stock and if you buy an mm -hmm. index fund. And right. if we want to get to the real underlying basics of what transaction is actually happening, it's two different answers. Right. So if you're buying a stock, it means a company is already traded in public equity markets, right? They went through the, it's a business that went through the trouble of registering with the SEC so that they could have their stock trade on an exchange be available to the public. And that requires a whole lot of extra um, regulation, a lot of extra disclosures. They have to make all their financials and strategy and other things available to the public. Uh, it's a heavily regulated space. It's very expensive legally. So why would anyone want to do it? If they have a business, why would you want to have to go to the public when you could run it privately and maintain a lot more um, privacy and not and not have to go through all the legal and reporting and compliance disclosures. It's because it's a way, a funding mechanism, right? That it provides an avenue of raising capital, um, either in the debt or equity markets. Meaning people either loaning money to a company or taking an ownership interest in a company. Okay? Right. When we talk about the stock market, we're only referring to the equity side. People own a business. Right. Now, generally when a company goes public, starts trading, and then when you go online and you want to buy 100 shares of a stock at your Fidelity account or Robinhood account or Charles Schwab account or whatever it is, you're not giving any money to the company. There's a lot of people out there that own stock, and you're just trading with one another. Right. And, and so when the company goes public, they're raising money, and they receive that money and then thereafter, people are trading with one another. Now, the company can also sell stock directly later right. on and so forth. They can do subsequent rounds. But just to try to keep it simple, basically, mm -hmm. Peter is trading with Paul. Paul right. is trading with Tom. Tom is trading with Peter, et cetera. That's, and, that's and so, what we're doing when they're selling stock. So you're buying a little chunk of this company. Uh, and so you're taking a share in the value of the capital, the capital value of the company, the profits the company might make, and so on and so forth. So um, your job as an investment manager includes deciding which companies to invest with and which not to invest with. And you must have some principles on the financial side that to tell you to invest with company A and not with company B. How do those principles connect with any kind of biblical uh, basis? Is, is this a part of life about which scripture has nothing to say? 
Or do you find in scripture principles which actually work out tangentially in one way or another in the decisions that you make as an investor? Yes, it's a wonderful question. And it's funny, my second book that I wrote was a book called The Case for Dividend Growth, Investing in a Post-Crisis World. And I joked that I would like to either do a second edition for the book someday or or even write an entire um, treatment of the same subject that was entirely theological. Mm. Um, you know, the book as it's written, I think, is very embedded in a theology and in a point of view. Mm. Um, and, and yet it is attempting to get more granular around financial and economic arguments for why uh, the dividend growth strategy of investing I consider to be a superior one on the investment merits, but there has to be a theological foundation to what I do. And in this particular case, the most basic, um, broad level is that we invest for the purpose of achieving a return on capital. Mm -hmm. And it's not one that is historically very controversial for Christians, the parable of the talents, the idea that we would take our excess savings and seek to generate some sort of leverage from it. In other words, mm -hmm. uh, you know, $5 can become $6 because we're investing in profitable and productive activities. But how does $5 become $6? Someone has to create a good or service that meets the needs of humanity. And when you uh, go to buy my lemonade stand, we if we don't provide lemonade that, that uh, quenches thirst, we got a business. And if we provide good lemonade, but do bad service, we got a business. But if we have good product and good service, then people will pay us for it. And we're going to charge based on a process called price discovery. Mm -hmm. If we go say, I want to charge a hundred dollars for the lemonade because it's good lemonade <laughs> and we have good service. And we find out no one will pay us a hundred dollars for lemonade. We are going to either got a business or we're going to adjust our price. And if it, we charge 50 cents for our lemonade and it's really costing us about 70 cents to make it, we're going to go out of business because even though we're going to get a lot of orders, we're losing money on all of them. So that won't be a sustainable business. But when we find out that we can actually get, I'm making up a number, let's say $3, you know, for a large lemonade and you go, wow, we have good service. We have good lemonade and the market will bear this out. And mm -hmm. some weekends the weather's warmer, we might get four dollars. Some weekends the war the warmer the the weather is worse, we get two dollars. But you use prices in a free society mm -hmm. as a signal for what makes sense for how you best serve customers and you generate a profit. And if you're an right. investor in the company that's generating a profit, you have private property rights that go with your ownership of the business. No different than you would if you owned a house or a field. Right. And those rights are basically on the stream of earnings. Right, right, right. And so that's the basic elementary foundation using a proverbial lemonade stand to explain what's going on. But, of course, when you start talking about really big, multi-billion dollar public companies, they don't just have a $3 lemonade out there, right? There's right. a lot of products and a services yeah. and a lot of other things that make or break the success of their business. That's what we have to do a lot of analysis on. But fundamentally, what dividend growth investing means is the way that the shareholders are generating their profit, their 
feeling the return of investment mm. is because there's profits being made and from lemonades, but it may be software and it could be, you know, right. uh, uh, industrials and there's all different sectors in our economy, but there's lemonades being sold and there's profits being generated. And from those profits, we're getting a share of profits back to us. Right. So it's measurable, it's sustainable. It fosters a responsible stewardship of the assets and the capital of the mm. business. And um, I believe that that stands out as opposed to what many investors do, which I think is borderline superstitions, right. which Talk is chasing momentum. Something's been right. going up, that means it may go up more. And, and trying to just uh, chase the herd a little bit, chase the crowd. Mm. I think that that is uh, rooted in poor theology from an investing standpoint. Right. So you so you got the contrast between somebody who is just betting really on yeah. on randomness, um, buying tulips because tomorrow tulips might be worth more, um, and on the other hand, somebody who's saying, "Look, I've I've saved this money. I want to invest this in this business, and the only way this business is going to make any money for me is if it's also benefiting other people." And to the degree that it benefits other people, it'll make a profit. I'll get a return on my investment. It sounds like it's combining um, a spirit of generosity because you have to be giving something that people want. And this kind of Trinitarian dynamic within creation where creation returns back more over time than it has at any one moment. The creation is productive because it comes from a God who is productive. That's exactly right. And that's where that's the difference between uh, productive capital and and there are basically strategies that blow up capital right, right. for us to deploy a lot of the nonprofit world, by the way, uh, operates off of a kind of Malthusian sense in which they believe there's limited resources and we got to get to those in need and let those resources go away. And I think that that. Um, in, in certain context uh, with subsidiarity and proximity can be a very important thing. Um, you, you people that are starving need to get help right then and there. The Good Samaritan needed help right then and right, there. Right. But as a sustainable enterprise, I do believe you want something that can continue to grow. And that is a very creational concept. Right. And I think when investors just simply think the investment was good because it went up in value. That um, I, I bought something for 10 and someone else wanted to buy it from me for 15. Well, that could be a good thing if the reason it went from 10 to 15 is because the profits grew 50%, the dividends grew. But if it only did it because you're sort of participating in a greater fool theory, mm -hmm. um, that there's just a mania going on and no one has any idea what stuff is valued. And yet people are all playing a sort of hot potato uh, hoping to kind of get rich, that that is by definition speculation, not investment. Right, right. And and I think a lot of people are unwittingly participating in such a thing. You know, I'm conscious. Um, we've only got a couple of minutes of your time left, and I want to ask you one more question just before we close off, um, which is to do with investor behavior. And I've heard you talk about this in many different contexts, and um, the the overall theme has been that investor behavior is the single most common determinant of outcomes. Mm. And it strikes me, this is probably linked to some stuff that the Bible says about human nature and greed and wisdom or foolishness. Do you want to talk just for a minute or two before we finish about 
what investor behavior is and how it can go wrong and how we might pass that in biblical terms. Yeah, so I think that there is um, a sense in which both in the Protestant and Catholic tradition, we, we know to look to what we believe about the human person uh, pre-fall and post-fall. And I myself believe that a lot happened at the fall in human nature, that, that, spirit, that nature of Adam um, was corrupted. It corrupted our minds. It corrupted our, our um, morality and our motives, our intentions. Now, there are other things that I believe are constant in nature, even after the fall. I believe before and after the fall, God made man with reason. Before and after the fall, um, God made man as an individual with dignity. And before and after the fall, God made man uh, to live in community with others. It was not meant to be alone. We know that God made Eve as uh, to, to be with Adam. We know that uh, mankind... Uh, needs to be in a community. There's a need for church. There's a need for family. The family itself was a pre-political and a pre-fall unit. All of these things, I think, matter a great deal. But when you when you talk about the um, the nature of man, we also know that the on the other side of the fall, that they're susceptible to uh, very rational yet nevertheless sinful tendencies. And when there is um, moments of fear, mm-hmm. that panic is an understandable and yet um, suboptimal response. Right. And, and that's why Proverbs writes quite a bit against some of these behavioral traps that people may find themselves in. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a lot of exhortation in Scripture in the Pentateuch and in Pauline epistles. But really, the book of Proverbs is a treasure trove of some of this. And so I find with investing that there are people who uh, are capable of falling forward in moments of euphoria. And I think the sin would be greed. Right. right. And, and also, not just greed, but more specifically, the belief that one uh, can make money easily and that there is a sort of substitute to risk-taking and to hard work that can be found um, with a particular gimmick or whatnot. And people right. are constantly looking for the next thing that might do that. So I do view, view, view this notion of investor behavior being one of avoidance of bad behavior. Right. And that could be the, the bad behavior of panic, uh, you know, the, the scriptural exhortation of fear not, do not despair, is the most oft-repeated commandment in Scripture. <laughs> and I think that avoiding that greed, that euphoria, yes. which oftentimes, I have to point out, is related, too, to covetousness. Right. We don't usually just say, I want to get rich today. We say, I can't believe that Johnny just got rich doing this mm. thing. I want to do it. It's usually connected to an envy of somebody else, which, which is... Uh, a really interesting commentary on why the Tenth Commandment was provided to us. Right, right, right. So you got uh, some guy who just got lucky and his stocks went up 50% and you jump on board just before it all comes crashing down again. And um, Yeah, yeah it, it, ha- it happens all the time. And I think that generally there's a couple sins going on at once. Mm-hmm. Wanting something because someone else just got done getting it 
Um, also, uh, that that belief, uh, what's the reason one wants to hit it big? Um, usually, if you dig deep enough, there it's attached to a, a life mission or a sort of vocational um, thought of removing oneself from their job. Right. And, and, yeah. and, and that's another issue that I, ha I take great exception to, mm -hmm. that the purpose of work is to not have to do it anymore. Yeah, the purpose of work is to run out of the need for it. Yeah. David, I'm very grateful to you, and I'm sure our listeners will be too, for you taking the time. I'm going to call a halt to this so that you can get away and I don't get in trouble with your personal assistant. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time with us today. Um, those of you who are listening, uh, as ever, please feel free to share this with all your friends if you think you find it helpful. As ever, uh, any questions you want to send in to me or uh, any of the other staff here at All Saints, please go right ahead and do so. But David Barnson, thank you very much indeed for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me.